0: Welcome to the How Fitting podcast where you'll hear from independent fashion designers and entrepreneurs about how they grow their business making clothes that fit their customer and values. I'm your host Allison Haynes. Today I'm joined by Rachel Fowler of Tonley. So welcome to the show, Rachel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, for those who are listening who are just meeting you for the
1: first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do at Tonley? Sure. So my name is Rachel Fowler. I am one of the co-creators and creative director at Tonle. Tonle is a zero waste and sustainable fashion brand. Um, we produce in Cambodia with um, our team of makers who are very central to our business. Um, and so our design and production are very integrated, which makes us quite unique compared to most traditional fashion brands. Um, and we use waste that comes from the garment industry in Cambodia. So it's essentially scraps and cut waste and dead stock that is being um, cast off by larger manufacturers on behalf of the brands that they work with. And we create that into new pieces. Awesome.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Um, So let's back up a little bit. How did
1: um, Tonle get started in the first place? Sure. So I went to Cambodia in 2008 on a Fulbright Fellowship. I was researching fair trade and sustainability through that fellowship, and I had the pleasure to meet a number of artisans who were working in um, kind of traditional methods and also, um, you know, as I say, you know, slow fashion and more handmade processes, Um, and I got to get to know them, see what was working for them and not working for them in terms of business models and sales and distribution, and that inspired me to start a brand with several of the people I had met in my research period. And that brand started out really small and we, and we, um, started selling first through one retail store in Phnom Penh in the capital of Cambodia, and then branched out to a couple more retail stores and started selling more wholesale to international buyers. And it kind of grew up from there. And then in 2014, that original brand, we actually rebranded, um, and relaunched as Tonle, but, um, this during this whole period. So that was, um, yeah, so I, all in total, I've been working on this for about 12 years now, and, uh, it's been quite a journey. Um, business has evolved a lot over time, but still working with some of the core team that I started with from the get-go and, um, You know, now we work with about um, 50 people, you know, full-time between the weaving team that we, we work with a weaving uh, cooperative in the Previhia province in Cambodia. They're independent, but we're their main clients. So they're kind of part of our team as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, 28 full-time staff in our workshop in in, uh, Phnom Penh.
0: Nice. So yeah, it's really, it's really grown over the years then. Um, So did you, you, like before you kind of went to Cambodia for your research fellowship, um, did you kind of have a background in fashion or like what kind of made you go into starting a fashion brand after doing that research?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I started making clothes and sewing when I was young, probably starting in third grade or so, I made my first um, outfit, which was a Halloween costume. Nice. And <laughs> I actually, you know, was really interested in using secondhand materials. So that costume was actually made from I, I took an old some old uh, clothes and actually remade them into something new. And Um, Yeah, it's quite funny considering, um, and I was really into thrifting and um, shopping secondhand. So in high school and then into college, I was actually already um, buying secondhand things and then remaking them into something new. Mm -hmm. And I started small little businesses selling those things kind of to friends and so forth. So that interest started from a very early age. Um, And then I went to art school and, uh, studied textiles, um, fiber fiber arts. So I was learning about dyeing, knitting, weaving, um, sewing more focused on the textile, you know, craft than fashion per se. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was obviously a natural inclination to clothing and garment making as well. Although I really saw a lot of problems with the fashion industry at that time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go into fashion, ironically, because (laughs) it was such a problematic industry. Um, But I was always really drawn to making clothes. So, you know, I found myself in kind of a pickle, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And that's somewhat what led me to go to Cambodia because, you know, I saw this opportunity where, okay, here's a place where there were a lot of fair trade organizations there, which is what kind of led me to Cambodia and, and led me to do this research project there. Um, And I found out that a lot of the organizations had been set up by nonprofit organizations as a way to kind of um, help revitalize the economy and and provide jobs after um, Cambodia had gone through, you know, a lot of trauma and uh, tumultuous period um, with the wars and everything going on from um, the seventies until really the late nineties. And so a lot of NGOs had come in and they had actually set up you know, kind of handicraft development projects um, as a a way of creating of of aid um, Mm -hmm. and also creating livelihood development projects. Um, So that was what kind of drew me to Cambodia to see, oh, here's a place where there is both this, you know, kind of cottage industry of craft and fair trade, but also, you know, Cambodia is a center for- production of garments right (laughs) for the mainstream fashion industry so there was you know this really stark contrast between these small independent craft groups and then mass manufacturing you know Cambodia is kind of especially at that time and now it's becoming less so but it's known for cheap low-cost manufacturing so a lot of the garments that were being produced there were the most kind of cheap and low quality garments um, Mm -hmm. because they could get labor at low, like these factories can get labor at low cost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you see, you know, both extremes. And so it was really interesting to see like both sides of that coin. Um, Yeah. And I think going there and realizing, oh, hey, like, yeah, the fashion industry is what it is. Um, it's not going to change until people actually come inside and change it from the inside. Mm-hmm. And that was what really, you know, motivated me to start my own brand, even though I had set sworn off fashion, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it was like, well, actually like I can complain about it all I want, but people still buy clothes and people are going to keep buying clothes. So if there's not, you know, a way to do this better then, you know, we can't just protest There has to be actual change from with inside. Mm-hmm. And that was really what motivated me to get, you know, start the brand alongside, um, people who I had met who, you know, were really inspiring and incredible and, and to get like between, you know, they motivated, motivated me as well as seeing this opportunity to, you know, do something a little bit different.
0: Yeah. So cool. So you've mentioned kind of the frustrations with, um, kind of the way that the fashion system works um, and has worked and then how you wanted to do something different. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the things that you're like, I don't want to do. I don't want to be in fashion because of these things. And then um, some of the ways that um, Tonle changes how that works?
1: Yeah, so I would say, you know, because I was a maker, and made my own clothes in high school. I remember going into shops and seeing stuff and being like, I know how long it takes to make these kind of garments. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that people could be paid a fair wage. Like, I mean, that was in high school and I already had awareness of this and keep in mind that this is like pre, you know, I think like now there's a lot of discussion about ethical and sustainable fashion Mm -hmm. and fast fashion. Wasn't even a concept at that time, even though it was just beginning fast fashion was starting to just kind of ramp up at that time. Um so this was before all that. But even still, you know, at that time, like I remember growing up around kind of the sweatshop scandals of the late 90s, like early and late 90s, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Nike protests were a big part of, I mean, yeah, protesting Nike was a big part of kind of the popular culture that I mean not popular culture, but sort of the counterculture that I grew up around. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, I remember in my mind being like, you know, combined with that going on in kind of the public dialogue and then the being a maker and knowing there's, this is like, something is wrong here, right? You just know that as a maker, because you have that. And I I know a lot of your audience are, you know, makers as well. And so (laughs) there's that moment where you're like, this is, there's no way that these prices can be fair, right? How could people pay a fair wage? And so that made me and then i you know i was kind of involved in the like diy punk rock kind of counter counter like resist everything movement (laughs) (laughs) um or sort of you know that was sort of the um dialogue around my like teenage years and i kind of channeled my angst into being against things and protesting and being politically active and Trying to fight for like social change in various ways, um, and a part of that was making my own clothes. And there is like a kind of contingent of this sort of DIY like punk rock community that is like, you know, sees like making as a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very much in my like consciousness as a teen and and so forth. So, you know, I didn't want to be part of the fashion industry because of all those things. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't really have like a clear concept of exactly what all of the problems were, but it was just this kind of vague knowledge that like something is very wrong with all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Cambodia, and I didn't, you know, I didn't go into it too much because I just knew I didn't want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to like resist that in different ways by like buying secondhand and Um, trying to make my own clothes and things, although, you know, that's still a problem because a lot of fabric is not coming from, um, you know, that's kind of an irony of the like sewing community as well, because it's like making your own clothes, but ultimately like the whole fabric and textile system is very problematic. So Mm -hmm. You know, I was buying fabric from like Joanne Fabrics, you know, (laughs) and I was like, okay, well, that was all that was really available to me. But at the same time, like that fabric is so cheap and definitely not made in a good way. Um, (laughs) So yeah, yeah. I'm
0: like, I like refuse to get anything from Joanne's anymore just because the quality is not good. And yeah, just yeah, I mean, it's more like
1: because I think that Joanne's does enable like people to and like, it's really the only place. If you live in the suburbs or in rural exactly. areas, it's like it, the only it really is. Yeah. Anything, right? So it is like, I think it's enabling people to get into it's like an entry point, I think, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's very accessible. Accessible, exactly. So I think it's important from that regard. But at the same time, like, and I mean, if, if I were if pe- if anyone were to ask me like where would a home sewer buy ethical fabric, I really honestly couldn't tell you. Like there mm-hmm. aren't like it's not easy to find. And so, I mean, that's like a niche that needs to be addressed for sure. But Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I was in college, we had, you know, catalogs that you could buy from that were more sustainable and ethical, but it's not like you can just go into a store and get that stuff. Yeah. You kind of,
0: yeah. Anytime that you're
1: buying fabrics online, you really have to know a lot
0: about fabrics to know what you're getting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would say like one of the problems with fabric in general is that I mean, okay, this is like a longer conversation, but brands essentially give consumers like some, a name to sort of, um, you know, a lot like, oh, what does this X, ex- like the brand is kind of the face of the sustainability and the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the certifications and all that stuff, but actually it's the factories who are doing that work. Um, But with fabric, because it's pretty much not branded so much because it's kind of, you know, all considered a raw material, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to associate like up fabric with a brand. And so therefore like it's a product and it's like, if you look across the board, like any non-branded product is like this. So like, for example, like uniforms and socks and underwear and things like people don't really care as much about like the brand names uniforms alone are like one of the most unethically made garments Mm -hmm. and why why is that like they make up the bulk like uniforms for even the u.s government like postal service worker uniforms or whatnot like those types of things because they're not branded and people don't think about them they're actually much more likely to have supply like issues in the supply chain because people are going to attack h&m and zara because they have big names Mm-hmm. But in reality, like the non-branded stuff is actually where like the most labor rights issues are happening because they're essentially like consumers don't even think about them. That's the issue.
0: Yeah. And they're not like marketing, you're not seeing ads for
1: right. The material. So yeah. Basically, fabric is is kind of like that. It's like when you go to Joanne Fabrics, right? You're not like, oh, let me look for like this brand of fabric. It's just like the fabric that comes from Joanne Fabrics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, Joanne's itself is kind of a brand, is a brand, right? But Mm -hmm. it's not like you go into that store and you think about like, where did this fabric come from? I mean, I think hopefully people are thinking about that more now, but, you know, like, I think because it's not, and I know we're kind of going on a tangent here, but. Yeah, um, no, it's a good tangent though. So, (laughs) (laughs) But like, I think that we as a society, like need to think more about like, you know, non-branded things because that is where actually like the bigger labor rights abuses are happening Mm -hmm. um you know and and then also like anything like the farther you go down in the supply chain the less transparency there is so things like fabric have like very little traceability compared to like cut and sew like cutting most brands right they trace only to cut and sew so when you get a garment right and it says made in Cambodia it's like the- it was cut and sewn. Yeah. Cambodia. Cambodia, but like there's a whole bunch of other stuff in that garment that probably isn't from Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most brands, like it's only like 60% of brands or something even trace to cut and sew. And then beyond that, like, I think there's only 1% of like the garments in the U S something like this are traced beyond cut and sew, which is pretty astounding. Uh-huh. Yeah. That means like the company itself, the brand itself doesn't even know where the fabric comes from which is very upsetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's like the brands with the third party certifications like Cradle to Cradle um or, you know, there's some really good ones that really force the brands to like trace beyond cut and sew, but like most brands don't even I mean, it's something like yeah, so 40% of brands don't even trace like their cut and sew. They actually use like a broker or something else. So it's really like, I mean, yeah, that's a whole thing. But my point is that the further you go down in the supply chain, the less, the more opaque it is and the like, um, you know, the more easy it is. And, and I want to say like, I don't put this, I put the onus on brands for doing like for understanding what's going on in their supply chains, because for a long time, it's been this kind of, I would say like a don't ask, so tell policy where it's like, mm-hmm. they, the factory will be like, oh, well, we can't tell you where this fabric is from because of like this non-disclosure agreement that we have, but, and the brand's like, okay, cool. Right. Cause it benefits the brand. They don't want to actually know because if they know they have to do something about it. And so they easily like, they kind of just look the other way because they kind of know like, oh, I'm getting a cheap price and I'm getting a cheap price because like something is going on that shady, but if I don't know about it, I don't have to do anything about it. And I can benefit from these cheap prices. So I think the brands actually drive a lot of that exploitation because they are just requiring factories to behave unethically in order to produce their products at a cheap price. Mm -hmm. Um, but if something goes wrong, they can just turn around and be like, Oh, well it's the supplier's fault. We didn't know, you know, Mm -hmm. we didn't know where this effort was coming from. So that's a, that's an arrangement that really benefits the brand and doesn't really benefit the factory at all.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so with your factory and the design side office side, and you mentioned even you work with a weaving partnership, it's all under the same umbrella for you guys. You're not contracting that stuff out. So how, how does that affect how you interact with the different from fabric to cut and sew to packaging distribution. How does that kind of change the game for you guys?
1: Yeah. I mean, we are, so we're totally different from a traditional fashion brand in the sense that we actually do our own production. Meaning like everybody who works on our, like the core team who work on our product are directly employed by us. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I bet that all... completely changes
0: your, you know, typically let's say like the brand, which would be like design, marketing, sales, whatever, um, probably completely changes like your incentives and motivations too, knowing that the rest of your team is also an employee. You can't just like pin stuff on them and have it not affect exactly. everyone
1: else. Yeah. No, we totally have to take responsibility for everything that happens at our workshop. Right. Because, and the other thing is like, we're incentive. We, it's a totally different incentive structure. Like for us, it's like, because we employ people directly, you know, and I'm the one who has to basically say like, can we pay everybody this month? And that Mm -hmm. is our core, you know, that is our core issue. Right. So it's not like how many products can we sell or how, you know, this and that it's like, we need to actually balance our production capacity with the sales so for Mm -hmm. example we can't sell too little and we can't sell too much a bigger brand if they um you know let's say they get lots of orders and the factory can't produce it then they'll just be like oh no problem we'll go to another factory and you lose that order right Mm -hmm. so the factory then will instead of saying oh we can't produce it what they'll do is they'll subcontract or they'll you know they'll essentially keep offsetting that risk to other people. And (laughs) so we have like, you know, so for example, last month, we actually had to close our workshop because of COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. and COVID was getting really bad in Cambodia. And also like the government was like locking down different neighborhoods and our workshop was in a red zone. So we had to close. Um, but because we have our own e-commerce brand, we had a lot of stock in the U S we could actually still keep selling that stock and then still pay people in the workshop um, with the profits from that. But typically a factory, like their production, not capacity, pay. Yeah. <laughs> well, their production capacity is directly tied to their orders. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. if, the, if the brand says, well, you can't produce this order, obviously I'm not going to pay you. So then the factory loses their revenue for the entire month. Right. And then how yeah, are they, gonna yeah. Pay their um, yeah. Yeah. Just like,
0: have- you know, all like, hearing this whole past year of so many brands canceling orders that were already in production or already made because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then the factory is
1: out, you know, who knows how much time and money. Right. And I mean, this was kind of the opposite scenario because in the beginning, it was on the sales side, the brands were saying, well, sorry, we can't make sales. So we're not going to take these orders from you that we already ordered and that you've Mm -hmm. already produced. And then now it's on the, on the demand side, right. Where it's, or sorry, on the, um, on the supply side, where the factories are saying, we literally cannot produce. Mm-hmm. And the brands are like, oh, you can't produce our orders too bad. We'll just go to some other country or we'll just get this somewhere else, you know? And it's like, or we're just not going to pay. Um, mm-hmm. it's like, well, then all these workers, like, how are they going to get paid if the factory doesn't? And the factories make such tiny margins, you know? So it's like, I know. Yeah. Make- profit margins off these products because supposedly the design is the valuable part. This is also drives me crazy. Um, you know, the design is, is seen to be the valuable part. And I'm like, you know, the skill of like making a finished garment and taking a garment from like a spec sheet to <laughs> not even a spec sheet. Like, so honestly, these brands don't even sometimes give the factory spec sheets. They just give them like a flat illustration. Maybe if that, and they're like, okay, the factory literally has to take it from that to a final product that is a finished garment and then get it into production, get the yeah, fabric. To all there's so like,
0: much skill there. Yeah.
1: A huge amount of skill. And like that, it, to me, that all that stuff is like equally part of the design, if not more, but yet like the factories are never credited for that. Not to mention, like if they're actually doing like sustainability work and so forth, it's the factory that does that sustainability work, not the mm-hmm. brand, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. The brand just gets (laughs) to piggyback on, you know, oh, they have, you know, such and such certification Mm -hmm. and put that on their website and marketing when really, yeah, they aren't the ones
1: working for that. Totally. And then they can just, you know, leave when things are bad. Right. And it's like, it's this carrot and stick model. Like I'm going to punish you when you do something bad, but you know, like I'll give you orders if you're already doing good work, you know, it's just like, and then the brand will turn around and be like, oh, look at all this great sustainability work we're doing. It's like, well, how about you pay your workers when there's a crisis, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I just, some of this stuff is just really, I mean, it really gets to me, but all that to say, you know, the reason I think that Tone is really special is because with design and production being integrated, there is this positive feedback loop between like, let's say, you know, our design team is like, hey, let's make like X, Y, and Z. We go to production, we say like, okay, um, you know, what do you think about this? And sometimes they'll say, well, we think it should be constructed in a different way. Like how about we do like this and that instead it'll make it easier for production. It'll make a higher quality garment. And then the us, the design team, me and a couple other people that work on design are like, oh yeah, cool. All right, great. Let's integrate that into the design. Mm -hmm. And then there's also like that feedback loop also happens on the sales side. So let's say like we run out of a certain kind of fabric well production and because we use limited fabrics, right. So you have to have Mm -hmm. that like feedback loop. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, we'll run out of fabric or like if the, we get, you know, these regular, um, deliveries of fabric from these remnant dealers that we work with and they'll be like, Oh, there's no more of this type of fabric in the market anymore, but we have this instead. Well, we can shift to using that fabric instead. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we communicate with our customers and we say, oh, like this is what's happening with production. And so we can no longer make this and now we're making this instead. And it's like, I think the customers also really appreciate that, right? Because it makes like a special, it's like, and so I think, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think it actually creates such a much more harmonistic uh, or harmonious relationship between production and design Mm -hmm. and actually creates a more unique experience it creates a better work environment for our team and it creates a more equalized dynamic between the customer and the maker. um, Because that's a lot more horizontal and a lot more equal um, kind of relationship. And so, you know, I think when we talk about like this concept of circularity, it like has to be the the supply chain model is like a top-down approach, right? Where you just extract Mm -hmm. and well, and I think that for circularity to be achieved, we not only have to think about circular design, but also circular communication and reciprocal relationships between production and design that are more, that benefit both sides, you know, that aren't just about like, what can I get from you, but how can we work together to create something?
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I'm always recommending to like my clients like your factory is a huge resource like you need to respect them pay them well and listen to their suggestions cuz yeah, like they're totally. the ones they're the ones working with the fabric and yeah it's it's very it needs to be collaborative like you know work with it like if you need you know if you need to get a cheaper price don't just say hey can you do this for cheaper so, you know ask them like is there a way this could be constructed in a more efficient way that would be cheaper for you to so you know, where you're not asking them to change the rate, but really you're changing the scope of what needs to be done um, and like totally. work on it in that kind of way, because it respects the work that they're doing. And ultimately, I mean, you're going to end up with a better product if you're, you know, getting the input from the people who are making it for you. So, yeah, I totally agree.
1: Oh, that, that's so great. Yeah, I think it's so true. It's like, I think that suppliers and makers are very knowledgeable but you know a lot of times the way that designers approach factories is extremely um paternalistic like
0: mm-hmm. and i have
1: people come to me like this and it's really upsetting it's like oh you know i want to place an order with you so i can help you and i'm like are you kidding me like if 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 i accept your order i would be helping you because i can do stuff like art and and by me i mean i i mean, Totally, mm-hmm. like we are offering you something that you cannot do for yourself, which is to produce your garments. Mm-hmm. So to come to me with you know this kind of mentality of like, oh, I want to help people in Cambodia, and it's like no, we work with like a very skilled team of people who have great uh, and a massive amount of knowledge and skill and learning. Like we've taken twelve years to build up this business, and not to mention having like a very unique zero waste process that. Almost very few other people can do.
0: Yeah. And I do want to we have about that in a minute, but keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah. We have limited production capacity. So if I choose to take on your order, then that is absolutely of benefit to you. And yet it'd be a two-way street, but mm-hmm. I just really, really hate that, you know, approach of like, oh, I feel bad for you. So let me help you. And it's like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we got to flip that narrative on it yeah it's a very
0: like colonial view of things um to like that you're helping this other country with things in order to further like your own capitalistic society um so yeah can we can we talk about that a little bit of um i i feel like that's something that i see or it, it can be an easy pitfall, I think, for ethical brands, especially who are, you know, producing in another country to kind of play into that, you know, like share stories about the the artisans and the you know the people in the factory. And it's in which I think can be good and good for transparency's sake, but I think there is kind of it's that fine line between are you, are you kind of taking advantage of their situation, their story, or even their capabilities in order to market in, you know, quote unquote, ethical product that people feel good about buying because they're like, oh, I'm helping this, th- these people. Um, yeah, And totally you know, actually helping the people, you know, like, I think it's, it's good to be transparent about, you know, who's making your things and, and what it's doing for the economy there. Um, but I think there can be a fine line of, you know, how that's handled and how that's approached in a way that's, you know, that is equitable to everybody involved. So do you have thoughts on that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I do have a lot of thoughts on that. And, you know, we could go into a whole podcast about this, but I mean, I'll just say that I think that, you know, we over the last year, we've talked, there's been a lot of kind of conversations about white saviorism. Mm -hmm. And I think we talk about it a lot in the kind of founder narrative of like the person who goes overseas and they want to help people. Um, But I think that there's also a white savior narrative that is fed to customers um, and that customers also take on. And especially in the ethical fashion world where it's like, oh, you know, just buy like, you know, this dichotomy of like workers being either exploited or saved. And just by buying a more ethical product, you can go from being the exploiter to being the savior. But both mm-hmm. of those, like both the exploiter and the savior are, a, are basically putting somebody on a power pedestal. And it's like, actually, so a lot of the ethical fashion marketing is really just saying, oh, instead of exploiting people through buying bad product, you know, through buying products that are made in a bad way, you can now be the savior just by buying a different product from an ethical brand. That's actually saving these workers from this exploitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that both of those mentality is actually take away from the agency of the makers and the workers themselves. Um, and that narrative is still about the customer at the end of the day. It's not about the maker at all. And I feel um, yeah, like a that's lot the of distinction.
0: The- You're right. You're totally right there
1: that's that's the differentiator <laughs>
0: thought,
1: oh, yeah <laughs> yeah and i think a lot of the um narratives you know that are basically put forward by a lot of the you know ethical fashion community really unfortunately fall into this trap and and what what ends up happening is we're not actually listening to what makers and garment workers actually want and mm. you know i think what we really need is more equitable dynamics and Again, like going back to what we were just talking about, saying, hey, just fundamentally recognizing that when you buy a product that's made in a way, ethical way or not, like you are getting something out of benefit out of that situ of, of that relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And if you buy a product from Tonle, for example, like you, yes, you are contributing to the work we do. Absolutely. We need to sell product to. To survive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like you are getting something very valuable out of that relationship. And that is that you get to put a piece of beautiful clothing on your body that resonates with your values, that makes you feel good about yourself, that looks great, that feels great. And that is something very special, you know? And so the way that I see our relationship with our customers is of one of reciprocity where it's like, yes, you are supporting our work. Yes. That's super important. Yes. You're contributing to something great, but also you are getting something of value and a benefit. And that should be a reciprocal equitable dynamic, right? Where it is an an equitable exchange, not one person helping the other, but actually mutually supporting each other. So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, for us, for the ethical fashion community to move forward and actually create equity We need to number one, um, really do away with this narrative of saviorism across the board. And that goes from founders to designers, to consumers, to customers. And we need to think about how do we actually form equitable relationships? How do we actually, because ultimately if people come to work at Tonle, like I don't want them to work at Tonle because they don't feel like they have any other option, I want them to work at Tonle because they actually like love their work, that they are coming there every day because they love their community, because they are being paid fairly. Of course, that should be the baseline, but they should come to work because they want to, not because they're like so down and out. And that's the only option for them. And, you know, and I think that that truly is the dynamic at Tony. Like people are coming to work at Tonle because they like love their community And I want people to also buy from Tonle because they love that community as well. And they're like, wow, this is such a cool thing to support, to be a part of, to buy from, you know, to like, you know, I get to have this awesome piece that I can put on and feel great about, and it should feel good all around, right? Like we don't want people to buy from us because they feel bad. We also don't want people to work for us because they feel bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's not a good incentive, right?
0: yeah 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 that's awesome um so what are some of the ways that you like build in that communication um between you know design and production for tonle where you're making sure that you know whatever you're doing is truly best for everyone involved like do you you have certain things that you like purposefully
1: do to you know get that kind of two-way communication you mean between like, between the design and the production team or between, um, yeah. customers and. Well, either one, I guess, cause you're, you're saying how, you know, making sure
0: rather than just spinning kind of the white saviorism narrative, making sure that it, it is an equitable fair and helping everyone involved. So I, I guess the question is like, are, are there, uh, things that you purposely do, yeah, either in communicating with your customers and in communicating with production to make sure that that is the case for Tonle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's been a process over time to keep evaluating our internal, um, you know, work and how we can do better. And I think, like, I'm not never going to be the first one to say that, I'm never going to be the one to say we're perfect. We Mm -hmm. always have things we can work on, but... I will say that over time, I really think that we keep improving and getting closer to our values, you know, and that's all that we can ask of anyone. I think like we, we need to just keep on reevaluating and seeing what we can do better and things all like people's needs also change over time. So what, Mm -hmm. you know, was working for people a few years ago might not be what they need now. So we have to constantly, um, you know, evaluate what's best for our team and for our business. but I think that like in terms of, yeah. So I would say in terms of internal communication, I think, um, you know, we do that through like just regular, like regular communication and just asking people how they're doing and what they need. And, you know, we do that through performance reviews, through team, um, team building (laughs) through retreats, through, um, we do that through like team meetings, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, just having regular communication is the key and just, you know, also like observation, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just like seeing, you know, and like, I think that most of our design happens in Cambodia in the same building as the production. Right. So that Mm -hmm. also just like fundamentally makes it different. Like, I mean, I, I'm helping to oversee the design process, but a lot of it is really done by our team in Cambodia. So it's literally integrated with production. I mean, so when they, you know, like for example there's not a separate team that makes the samples. Like it's literally Mm -hmm. the production team that's also making the samples. So the design, you know, the designers are working there on the production floor with the the sample making team. And, you know, those are the same people that are gonna produce the garments. So they can easily say, oh no, this isn't working for us, et cetera. And like, here's how we think we could change it. So that's very fundamentally different than the way that most traditional, like most brands operate. And then I would say also like with our communications externally, you know, we've made decisions and we've been clear about this to our, um, you know, customers where we often will say like, Hey, um, here's something that like our customers want, but it's actually not the best thing for our team. So we're not going to do it. And (laughs) we've had to say that like two people, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas I think in the, you know, in the kind of quote unquote West, there's often this mentality that the customer is always right. And we're not going to bend over backwards for a customer if they're asking us to do something that isn't aligned with what's best for our team. Um, And
0: that takes a lot, that takes a lot of uh, um, (laughs) courage and I guess just like clarity in like, no, this is really what we care about, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really amazing.
1: Yeah, no. And I mean, and the other thing is like some, like where that gets really tricky and hard is where like people are asking us to do things that are not going to be like financially viable for the business, you know, for production where it's like, okay, if you, you know. Mm-hmm. like certain requests and stuff. And it's like going to cause us to actually lose money, which is then makes it hard to like pay people. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's hard, you know, cause I think like a lot of, we don't have as large, lo- like a bigger profit margin built into our business. So I think a lot of times, like other businesses will say like, oh, it's okay to take the loss on this and like to mm-hmm. appease the customer. Right. Um, And we actually charge like a much fairer margin overall. And so we don't have that much cushion compared to other brands. And so we can't just be like, no, we'll give you all these things for free because you're angry and you're going to write a bad Yelp review or whatever, like things (laughs) like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that customers also need to analyze how their behaviors like incentivize um, brands to do things to their workers too. So for example, Mm like- Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know. There was an art, there was an article recently. I forget which it was some fast fashion brand. I forget which one they are being sued for not delivering products to their customers on time. And cause they had basically promised really fast delivery and they couldn't meet that delivery during COVID, which
0: was a very, apparently- yeah, you'd, you'd think most contracts have like the act of God or, so, you know, some sort of like yeah. natural disaster clause. I think COVID falls into that.
1: Yeah. So like, I don't know. It's like, I'm not trying to defend what this brand is doing, but I think that creating this idea that customers can have whatever they want as fast as they want, when they want it and not being able to say, Hey, look, we're in a global pandemic. All of the like shipping companies and stuff like their their workers are like frontline workers who are putting themselves at risk to deliver your Mm -hmm. fast fashion products to you. And now we have a class action lawsuit against this brand for not delivering things on time. And I think that creates a really bad incentive structure and it's customers who are driving that or potentially Mm -hmm. lawyers who are saying, oh, I can, I can sue you because of this fine print on your website where you promised, you know, to deliver in this amount of time. And so it's like, I'm not trying to defend that brand, but I think when customers have this mindset that they can get whatever they want, whenever they want it. And then, you know, the, like legal system essentially backs that up and protects the customer um, at all costs. It's like that creates incentive structures that harm workers. And in this case, I think the workers that are harmed are actually the delivery workers and the warehouses. Mm-hmm. And like conditions in warehouses in North America are some of the worst and most unethical places like in in of any industry, I would say in, in North America. And like, I mean, just like, there was a great New York times, um, daily podcast about fast shipping and the consequences on workers. Mm -hmm. And it came out last year, um, during the pandemic and like the, they, the article or the, um, the podcast talked about a situation where a worker basically collapsed on the floor and was having a heart attack. And they put cones around her body and said that nobody could, um, help her. And like, force everybody to keep working around her and she died while the workers were like being forced to continue shipping packages in this house and so when i then when i read like okay there's a class action lawsuit being driven by customers because they're mad that they didn't get their packages on time I'm like customers have to take responsibility for how they're incentivizing companies to behave badly as well Mm -hmm. you know what i mean
0: yeah the responsibility isn't isn't just yeah, it isn't a customer is not always right. And so I think I think kind of throughout this whole thing, it's taking responsibility. I and it seems like mostly fashion puts all the responsibility on the factory for the most part. But it's yeah. like brands need to take more responsibility and customers need to take more responsibility for the impact of their choices and what they're asking for.
1: Um, Yeah, because if a customer goes to a brand and they're like being very demanding and blah, 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 like, eventually, like, if there's not people who are doing that, like that does affect the brand. And it's, it's this whole thing about like speed and it's not just pricing, right? It's also like the speed at which people want to get things. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to return everything. I don't even look at the size chart. I just buy three different sizes and I return mm-hmm. both other ones. It's like those kind of things. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, I have a client who's a made on demand yeah. who does made on demand and they still have people who even even though they prominently say, like, we make this to order for you, like we'll order three sizes of something to try it on. It's like, why would you do that when you know you're gonna return two of them?
1: Um, Yeah. And that really hurts. Like that really hurts small brands. So it's, it's, it's not just like, yeah, like it's not just pricing. It's also all of these things and returns are also also like, I mean, so bad for the environment. Right. mm -hmm. So that's a whole thing. But, um, you know, I would say like most of our customers are like 99% of our customers are honestly awesome. And they're like very, very like flexible and understanding, but you just get that like 1% Of people who are just like very difficult. And I would say we've had some customers who have been like borderline abusive.
0: Mm.
1: I'm like, no, you don't get to be abusive to me just because you're buying something from me. Like that's Mm -hmm. not okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know?
0: Well, I think that goes back to kind of the customer feels like they are helping you by buying something and that you should like bend over backwards to get their business. And it, you know, <laughs> I think right? for, totally. an, you know, yes, when there's enough customers that are demanding something, yeah, that creates an incentive, but one single customer, if they're being demanding, you know, y- like y- you don't have, you know, it's not really gonna affect your business to turn down one person for for doing stuff. So. It's like, well, they're not
1: helping you that much, you know? <laughs> Except that they can go on, like, they can go on Google or Yelp or whatever and write a bad review. And that actually does really affect business. Like, yeah, yeah. like that luckily hasn't happened to me, but there have been people who have even like, you know, there are people who go around and they're like, if you don't do this for me, like, and they, they tried to use this to like threaten businesses to get what they want. Mm-hmm. And they'll say like, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to write a bad review. And the thing is like a lot of business owners know that that's going to really hurt them. So they'll do whatever that person is asking for. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's the customer thinking, like they have all the power and, you know, in some ways, I guess they, they do have some power in what the words they, they write or spread about your brand, but um, Yeah it's like to hold that over someone still isn't right. Even if you, even if they do have the power
1: with their words or their reviews. Um, Yeah. But all that to say, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, like those people are few and far between, but I think that by like us directing the narrative a little bit more and saying like, Hey um, you need to think about as a customer too, like what incentive structures are you creating for brands? Um, And it's not just like, I think the common narrative is like boycott fast fashion, don't buy from fast fashion. And, but it's actually just what I want to emphasize is it's beyond that. It's like also like you, it's not just like not buying from fast fashion companies, but it's also like, how are you incentivizing the brands to be this way and not in other ways, like what, like demanding certain things. And I think we have to just like as customers, like we need to think about the culture and the power dynamics that are at play and how you're contributing to that. Right. And so it Mm -hmm. all comes back to like having a cultural shift and a a shift in the viewpoint of even just valuing the work that, you know, that garment makers are doing, valuing the work that, you know, USPS workers are doing, Mm -hmm. valuing (laughs) the people who like work in warehouses for 14 hours a day and ship our products. Um, I think that all of that needs to be given a lot more value than it does in our society. And instead of putting so much emphasis on designers and their like ideas, we should be thinking about all of the workers and all the labor that goes into each product that we make and buy. And I think if we as a society valued that a little bit more and understood it a bit more, I think we would potentially shift our thinking on, you know, where, how we spend our money and what, what we value.
0: Yeah, so true. Um, So I do want to talk a little bit about um, your zero waste process. So um, can you kind of describe that and how do you approach zero waste design and what does that look like for Tonle?
1: Okay. So Tonle has a pretty unique zero waste process. We take scraps from larger garment factories, um, which are a combination of cut waste, um, things that failed quality control and dead stock. So first, firstly, one thing that makes us different is that a lot of brands are using dead stock fabric, Mm -hmm. um, and they're calling that waste, but that's a little bit different than what we do because we're actually using the cut waste and the quality control failures as well. Um, and so we're, you know, when we talk about waste, like I think that there's a lot of gray zones in terms of what is actually considered waste because of course like if somebody can use that material it is technically not waste right mm-hmm. <laughs> there's the saying waste isn't waste till you waste it mm-hmm. it's kind of cliche <laughs> at this point but I think it's really important to emphasize that waste is essentially a byproduct of a system that has devalued raw materials and people's labor um but in a lot of cultures and countries um, where capitalism isn't so all-encompassing, you know, things don't get thrown away as much and do get used. Um, but in Cambodia, the issue is that a lot of the so-called waste that we're seeing is actually this byproduct of mass manufacturing. Um, and that does include dead stock and that does include the cut waste and the quality control failures are the three main kind of like things that we see in these like remnant markets where we get fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, in the U S um, a lot of the dead stock that's sold is actually kind of a little bit more complicated because it's kind of like a lot of the higher end fashion brands, like they know they can sell these remnants And so they sort of don't have to be conscientious about their production Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, they have like this high value material that they can then sell. So when I see designers who are using dead stock and they're just purely claiming, oh, this is eco-friendly because it's dead stock. That's not completely like cut and dry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's better than making more raw materials, but yeah. Well, I don't know though, because it's it's essentially enabling these designer like these larger companies to essentially not have to be conscientious about their raw materials. So mm-hmm. it's kind of creating an incentive for the um, larger companies to, not be conscientious about that. I really like the model of fab scrap a little bit more. Yeah. I've bought from them for, for, for personal projects since, since I don't shop at Joann's anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think fab scrap is a really good example because what they do is they actually go to companies and say, Hey, we will act, you actually need to pay us to take away your waste. Then they process it. They do all these things. And then they actually sell like the, the parts that they can sell, they do sell, and that helps to support it. But ultimately they're treating like waste collection as a service is their primary business. Mm-hmm. Um and so instead of saying and so that actually creates the incentive structure for these design houses to waste less because they have to actually pay to have it taken away. Right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand there are some new models coming up. I'm not going to name them by name but you can google it where they're actually selling dead stock online and they're trying to say so they're going to companies and actually saying, "Hey, you can aggregate your dead stock, put it on this website and like you can sell it. Now that's creating to me, in my opinion, that's creating the wrong incentive structure because that incentive structure is basically telling the brands like, Oh, Hey, we're going to make it easy for you to sell like your high end supposed waste. But to me, that's saying that's like creating the wrong incentive structure. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Fab scrap I really like because they're actually saying, no, this is like truly like waste product that you need to pay for us to take away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they do, of course they sell it, but they have to do a lot of work to like process it and, you know, sort it and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, I admire that model a little bit more. So what we do at Tonle is like probably, you know, what I would say, like, because I've spent a lot of time going to these markets myself, I can verify that this is truly like more waste product, And the reason, and the reason it's extra problematic is because the brands are essentially like having these factories in Cambodia produce their product. But the thing is like, Cambodia doesn't have a great waste management system. And they're also producing like very low cost, fast fashion. So there's a lot more cut waste and there's a lot more things that fail quality control because it's getting produced really quickly. They're mm-hmm. also using really cheap fabric. Um, and so a lot of times, like I've literally seen fabric that, you know, was cut and was half sewn into garments and holes were all over the garments. Like literally the fabric was falling apart as they were making it and then it would get through. And so what's kind of unique about Tony is because we have this weaving process where we can take stuff like that. That's like quality control failures. It's not really good quality per se, for the thing they were trying to make, but we can actually use it and transform it into something else. So anything that's like kind of that type of thing, like it doesn't look like it's as good quality fabric, that's the stuff that we would then, you know, cut into smaller strips and weave into new fabric. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: we're very conscientious about really trying to find fabric that is truly waste, not just like this kind of intermediary dead stock that is like potentially, you know, sellable, potentially, not. <laughs> um, but we do use some dead stock as well. And in conversations with um, you know, a lot of the people working in the garment industry in Cambodia, you know, the issue is that essentially these factories are producing something for a specific brand. They have to actually pay for all the fabric up front and order it up front. But then sometimes the brands will change their projections or, or they'll cancel an order or they won't order a lot. And so the factory can be left with a bunch of fabric that they can't use because they're only producing that thing for that specific client, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, I do think the dead stock is actually a true waste product. Um, but there are cases where factories will actually overorder because they know they can sell that, that product, they can sell that fabric on. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of complexities around that, and you know, lots of different opinions. You'll definitely see people on the internet saying like, oh, dead stock is like never actually sustainable because it is like contributing to this overproduction. Um, there are also other people who will say, you know, no, it is a waste product and we need to use it. But I would say we're kind of like, I, I just want to be like honest that there's a lot of gray zones with it, but we do try to utilize like some of the stuff that really is, is going to waste. And I, and there are like I mean, in Cambodia, a lot of the the fabric actually gets burned, so it's the pro- um, like there isn't a good system for recycling or really proper waste management. Um, mm-hmm. And factories are even using fabric scraps to like burn and turn into electricity, which is quite <laughs> disturbing. <Wow. laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's really cool that um you've been able to work with some of that like true cut waste and incorporate that into like really making and crafting something new and unique for Tanlei. Um mm-hmm. I have one last quite quick question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is if you could communicate one value to the world through the clothes you design,
1: what would it be? Hmm. So I would say one value I would want to be communicated through the clothes that we're making is that of reciprocity and, you know, which we kind of talked about earlier in the episode that you know, that we need to create reciprocal relationships. And I think in how we make things and put things out into the world, I want people to feel like they're contributing to something of value and they are also gaining something of value when they purchase and wear our clothes. Um, And I think the idea of reciprocity really is important to creating a truly circular system. And I've been Mm -hmm. inspired by this concept a lot, you know, throughout the year and recognizing, how, you know, throughout so many of the tragedies that have happened, um, in this past year and a half, um, I kind of keep coming back to this concept because we are so interdependent on each other. And I think recognizing how much, how interdependent the world is and how much we need each other. Um, at the beginning of 2020, I actually read the book braiding sweetgrass, um, which is really a beautiful um explanation of the concept of reciprocity um, and I highly recommend it to anyone um, yeah, I'll,
0: to, to, I'll put a link <laughs> in the show notes
1: yeah who wants to learn more about creating more equitable relationships and more recognizing the interdependence that we have and honoring that um, and living a life that that really honors that and I think that's something I would love to be communicated through the clothes that we create at Tonle
0: so cool Um, Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for the great conversation today. It's been really insightful and so much to think about um, with running a brand and, yeah, being more equitable and reciprocal in in all the relationships involved in that. Um, Where can people find
1: more about Tonle online? So our website, tonle.com, that's T-O-N-L-E dot com. Um, We're also on all the social media channels at Tonle Design. T O N L E D E S I G N.
0: And I'll put all that in the show notes as well. That's um, great. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Haynes, and I hope you join me again for the next episode of How Fitting.